You don't have to answer this question out loud. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Just think about it. Uh, do you put more weight, more confidence in what someone says or in what someone does? Do you put more stock, more weight in the words that you hear come out of their mouth or what you observe about their life, especially when those two things don't match? When their words are different from how they actually live or what they say is different from what you observe them doing. Which one do you believe the most? If you're trying to figure out who a person is, what they're about, what they're really like, which one of those matters the most to you? Uh, Unfortunately, over the last few years, we have uh, yet again witnessed a series of moral failures among religious leaders. And that list is long, depending on how far back in history you go. It's not something new. It's not something we're unaccustomed to. But from Ravi Zacharias to Bill Hybels to Mark Driscoll, and the list goes on and on. We have once again been through a season where we've seen people who said one thing, but we're doing something else. Certain believable things came out of their mouth, but when they were not on stage, when they were not being watched, they were living a a different life. Knowing that now, um, it colors the way I view all the things they said before, right? Does that... Is that the way you see things that, that when you find out somebody's not who you thought they were, then everything they said before that kind of takes on a different color, a different shape. I tend to uh, view everything that those men and others said a little differently now that I know they weren't actually living the things that they said. And and if that's true for those people, if that's true for other people, if I tend to evaluate people more by what they actually do than by just what they say, then I have to turn the question around to myself at some point, right? We, We all have to ask, do we, do I, do you want... Uh, Would you rather be one who only says the right thing or a person who does the right thing? Which would you rather be? Hopefully, we'd want to be both. But would you rather be someone who just has all of the right answers, says all of the right lines, or, or would you want to be? Are you striving to be a person who does what is right? It's not always a distinction even between words and actions. Sometimes it's between words and words. It's what we say in one environment versus what we say in a completely different environment. The words that we choose around one group of people are those the same words that we choose around a different group of people. Are we consistent in the words that we use, and the things that we say, and the positions that we take. On Sunday morning, we say a lot of words. We sing a lot of words. We pray a lot of things. We quote a lot of words from the Bible. But are the words that we say today consistent with the words that we choose the rest of the week? And do the words that we use today match what we do the rest of the week. We're going to be in 1 John. It's almost at the very end of your Bible. If you want to find it in your Bible, maybe go to the, the end and back up. Once you get through the, uh, the 
reference material at the back. You'll come to Revelation, and then you'll back up, and you'll get to 3 John and 2 John and 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John. John, Same John wrote all three, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Same John wrote the Gospel of John at the beginning of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, same guy. Same guy wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. He wrote all of those books. <clears throat> in 1 John, John is... Uh, among other things, trying to help believers have confidence in their salvation, have assurance that they are followers of Jesus, they're part of the family of God. Uh, there were a lot of doubters in his audience. There were possibly groups that were attacking believers and leading them away to believe other things. And so this created a lot of doubt among this group of people. And so part of John's theme is to say, you need to know that you're a follower of Jesus. Because if, you're, if you know you follow Jesus, if you have that assurance and confidence, then you'll be able to grow in your faith. You'll become more and more what Jesus wants you to become if you're not constantly doubting whether you're actually a follower of Jesus. So he says things like, this is how we know, or I want you to know, and this is how you would know if you're a follower of Jesus. Here's one example. It's not the one we're going to deal with, but as an example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, John writes, we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we keep his commands. Like We know that we're a follower of Jesus if we're if we're living to obey what he wants us, how he wants us to live. We won't be perfect, but th there is a desire to more and more obey the commands of God. That's how you know. And if you have no desire to obey the commands of God, if there's nothing in you that's pointing you toward the principles of God, then maybe you don't have a relationship with Christ. Right? By, by pointing out, this is how you know, John is also pointing out, this is how you know that maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. If these things aren't in your life, then maybe you have a church experience. Right? Maybe you know some things about the Bible, but maybe you don't really have a committed relationship to Jesus if these things aren't true. Now, here's the one we're going to dig into. It's in, it's in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. John says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, we should love one another. And we've all heard that message, right? All throughout the Bible we're told, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself, love God above everything. We should love one another. John could have stopped right there, but John explains what he means just a little bit. When John begins to explain what we should love one another looks like, he begins on the extremes. He sets up two polar opposite extremes. Now, personally, I'm not a big fan of arguing from the extremes. I usually find that sort of argument to be rather lazy. That's most of the argument we see in the world today, is we argue with the extreme version of the other side, and most people aren't on the extreme version. When we begin to argue extremes, often it means we don't really have a point, or we don't know what our point is, or we don't have a good argument. The difference with John, though, John is going to point out these two extremes about what love is and isn't so that he can eventually dial into your practical life. 
He's going to set the boundaries. Here's as far apart as you can get from loving and not loving. Now, what does that mean for you? And we're going to get to that in just a minute. John writes, we should love one another. And then in verse 12, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's we're righteous. Just for review, Adam and Eve, first humans in the Bible, beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve uh, have two sons, Cain and Abel. They become young adults. Cain and Abel both, both bring an offering to God. God is pleased with Abel's offering. God is displeased with Cain's offering. So Cain kills his brother Abel, right? Just your typical heartwarming family story to start the Bible. And John says, Get this, don't be like Cain. Like don't, don't be that guy. We should love one another. Let me tell you what that is not. It's not murdering anybody. Right? That seems fairly simplistic. Seems like the extreme. Right. Loving one another means I don't murder anyone. And everybody here passes the test, right? Like if this were a homework assignment, did you murder anybody? Hopefully we all pass, right? No, we haven't murdered anybody. We're good. John goes on, verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, <clears throat> if the world hates you. Okay, so love one another. That means don't murder anybody. But... Don't be surprised if there is conflict and hatred among people who aren't believers. Don't be surprised if people treat each other in cruel ways. That's the way the world kind of operates. Don't, don't be surprised if people are nasty towards each other, if people are dismissive towards each other, if people are cutting and biting and hateful towards each other. Don't be surprised. The world operates from this standpoint of division and conflict. Now, pause for just a second. John is not saying, and I'm not saying, that if you're not a Christian, you can't be a nice person. That's not what John's saying. He's not saying that non-Christians can't be kind or they can't love. John is simply saying, you are going to see in the world where we live hateful things. Don't be surprised. You're going to see cruel things. Don't be surprised. You're going to see people treat each other in evil ways, dismissive ways, harsh ways, this is how the world operates. Not every single human in the world operates this way, but this is what you're going to see. Don't be surprised that this exists. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. We know that we've been changed by Jesus. We, we know that we are not like the world, because of the way we love. When you look at the world, you will see evil, cruel, harsh, dismissive, hatred, even hatred 
enough to murder someone. You will see this in the world. You know where you should not see this? Among people who name the name of Jesus. Right? We know that we pass from death to life. We have entered into eternal life with Jesus because of love that we have for each other. And if you don't love, then you haven't passed from death into life, John says. There is no explanation he gives for followers of Jesus who treat other people in the way of the world. Hateful, evil, belittling, cruel. Verse, verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John borrows some of the theme of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, if you're angry with someone, you've committed murder in, in your heart. So John's expanding this extreme over here to hatred and murder, and if you're a follower of Jesus, this should not be in your heart. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is all the way the other extreme. So John sets up on one extreme. If you don't love one another, this, it looks like murder, it looks like hatred, it looks like cruelty, and you're going to see this in the world. All the way at the other extreme. You, you know what love looks like? Well, let's look to Jesus. Let's get, look to the ultimate expression of love. It's giving your life away. John set up these two extremes, right? To not love is to be willing to take life. To fully love is to be willing to give your life. One extreme, hatred enough to take a life, love enough on the other extreme to give away my life for somebody else. And let's be honest, <clears throat> none of us live on those extremes. None of us live on those extremes. I think I can say with confidence there are no murderers in the room. If there are, repent, seek forgiveness, turn yourself into the authorities, okay? But I think 99% sure, watching online, in the room, I'm fairly certain no murderers, literal murderers here. I am 100% confident that nobody in this room has died for somebody else, all right? You all look mostly alive. All right, I am confident nobody here has literally given their life and died for somebody else. So John sets up these two extremes. Lack of love is to take a life. Full expression of love is to give your life. Then John seemingly says, look, you don't live on those extremes. Let me tell you how you show love. You're not going to leave this room and die for somebody. Chances are you and I are never going to literally die for somebody. So what would it look like for me to practically take love one another and land it in between these two extremes in my everyday life? This is what it would look like in verse 17. If anyone 
has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity or compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John says we should love one another. Okay, we shouldn't murder anybody. Check. Jesus gave his life away, ultimate expression. I'm probably never going to have to do that. What, what could I do to show love? Well, if I have any of life's goods, that's the idea. Any of life's goods, any of this world's stuff. And I see somebody who is in need of what I could provide and I don't do it. How is that an expression of God's love? How does God's love live in me if I see people who could benefit from something I have and I could give it to them and I refuse to give it to them? Then how do I have love in my heart? Practically, daily, you and I can live out love in this way because we have life's goods. To some degree, you have life's goods and love calls you to give what is rightfully yours to meet the needs of someone else's life, right? Love looks like, practically, caring for others at my expense. Not going to have to die for anybody. But when I see someone in need and I can meet that need, and I withhold compassion from that person, then I'm proving that God's love isn't living in me. God's love isn't active in my life, right? And life's goods can be possessions. It, it can be wealth. It could be what I think is rightfully mine. It could be what I think I deserve. It could be my rights. It could be my authority. Not just tangible things, but when I see hurting people, when I see people in need, when I see people afraid, when I see people who have concerns and I could give up something that would help them and I don't do it. John just asked the rhetorical question, how can the love of God be in you when Jesus gave up everything because of your need? Jesus gave up all of his rights because we were in need. Jesus gave up all of his authority because we were in need. Jesus gave up everything he could have demanded. Right? He, he, he told the disciples at one time, like, I could command angels to come fight for me if I wanted to. And Jesus lays that authority aside. He lays what he deserves, what is rightfully his as the king of the universe. He lays that aside because you and I had a need. He, he didn't become more Jesus when he did that. He did it for us. He did it because I had a need and you had a need. You and I, practically speaking, living between these two extremes, what you and I can do to demonstrate that the love of God is at work in us is to give up things for the good of other people. 
Whether those be material possessions, whether be those things be my opinions or my rights or my privileges or, or my authority or what I deserve or what I worked for. This belongs to me. It's laying it down. Because love does not reveal itself in words alone. It doesn't reveal itself in emotion alone. It doesn't reveal itself by feeling a certain way. Love reveals itself because I do something for the sake of, for the good of someone who is in need. If anyone has life's goods, the stuff of this life, time, rights, authority, privileges, possessions. If anybody has life's goods and sees someone in need and doesn't respond out of a heart of compassion, how does the love of God dwell in that person? I, I, there are times you just have to go to the King James, all right? Not my favorite place. This is one of the times you just got to read it from the King James. First John 3.17 in the King James, but whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him. Now you should frame that, put it in your house somewhere. Shutteth up his bowels. See, in the first century, What they had figured out is that our emotions come from deep within us. The, the things that matter the most, they come from the deepest places within us, the core of our being. That's why the King James translates it that way. But we say, even today, we say things like, um, I feel it in my gut. Like if you've ever heard somebody say that, said that, yours, I had a gut reaction, like just deep down I knew what I was supposed to do. Like I had this deep down feeling, I had this instinct. That, that's the idea. And so, first century, John's writing and says, like if you, don't, if you don't feel deep down in you compassion for hurting people, I, I don't know how the love of God is in you. I don't know how you justify that and claim to be a follower of Christ. It should spill out of us. Whatever we have to lay down, whatever we have to give up, whatever we have to do, whatever we have to step back from, the heart of God at work in us should compel us to lay things down for the good of other people. And John warns us, it's possible to cut that off. It's, it's possible to cut the, your feelings off, to cut your compassion off, to be so hardened toward a person, a group of people, an idea. It's possible to cut that off. And you, you may know people. It's just like they flipped a switch. And they show no compassion. Like they're harsh toward everyone. Their, their opinions don't take into account that these are real human beings on the other side of this argument. They've cut off the compassion. And, and John says, if you've done, if you flip the switch, I don't know how the love of God's in you. James handles it very similarly in James chapter 2. 
James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? And then notice the illustration James reaches for. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Suppose they need something. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What good does it do to talk about how compassionate you are? James says it does no good. It proves nothing of your faith, your love of God, your commitment to Christ. It does nothing. If you can see somebody with a need and your response is, but I have my rights and I have my whatever and this is mine and I deserve. If that's your response, John and James are confused as to how you name yourself a Christian. Because what should come out of us is the deep, compassion, mercy, and love of God for hurting people everywhere. In order to consume as much coffee as humanly possible each day, I start early. I'm happy to put a training plan together for you if you'd like to follow in my footsteps. But I start early with coffee as I'm getting ready in the morning and then after I've had a cup or two or three and it's time to leave, I want that one last cup to go with me, right? Just like that last moment. So, so I, I fill up a, a, a cup of coffee and I have the travel mugs with the lids. I just don't like them. Like I, I want a coffee mug. I want it open and free and I want the aroma to fill my car, right? So I don't like taking a, a, a travel mug with a top, which presents problems because after I've loaded up the car and I, I make my, my cup of coffee, then I got to get in the car with my lidless co coffee. I've tried two different approaches to this. And one is just the hold it with this hand and be really, really careful approach. The problem is there's multiple opportunities for spillage at that point, right? Because as you're getting in the car, it's easy to bump your elbow on the car frame right here. Or if you make it past the frame, then you've got, you've got to like stick the landing. Like when you get in to drive, because if you don't really stick the landing, then it's going to slosh a little bit. Then it's the whole seatbelt thing and, and holding this out here and seatbelt with one hand. So it's fraught with danger uh, at that point. I, I've tried putting the coffee cup on the center console and then getting in like between the two seats, letting it sit there, and then I get in. But again, it's the whole landing thing. Like if, you, if you're too harsh with the landing, then it's going to spill this may be hard to believe. I know it's only a few seconds, but more than once I have forgotten that I put it there. And so when I put the seat belt on, it gets the elbow. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why don't you put it in the cup holder? Well, I don't use a little cup like this. Like, I use a big cup, and it doesn't fit in any of the cup holders whatsoever. Um, 
Admittedly, there are more important things in the world than this dilemma that I have. And a person with a master's degree really shouldn't struggle this much to get in the car with a cup of coffee, but here we are. I'm just telling you what my life is like. When it comes to getting in the car in the morning with coffee, when it comes to living your life, here's what I found. Whenever we get jostled, whatever is on the inside is going to spill out. Right? Jostled is like the biblical term. Whenever we get jostled, we get bumped, we get knocked, whatever's in here is going to spill out. And it's going to stain my clothes and I'm going to have to wipe down the car seat. Whenever you get bumped in life, I can promise you, whatever's on the inside of you, that's when it's coming out. Like the, the real you that's when it's coming out. C.S. Lewis deals with this in Mere Christianity. He said, you know, some people say that surprise, that caught off guard moment is not a good gauge of who you are. And Lewis says, I think it's the best gauge of who you are. And because there's no defenses, you're not guarded. The real you spilling out in that moment. We have, we, we, we continue to be in... Uh, what I think, I may change my mind looking back someday, but what to me seems like the most turbulent time that I remember in my whole life. Back in history, there's more turbulent times. I get that. All right? If you go back before I was born, there's a lot more turbulent times that have happened. But as far as the convergence of so many different Issues and pressures and stress and uneasiness and, and, and nervousness. And I don't remember a time ever in my life like the last year and a half, two years. I don't remember. We've been bumped a lot. We've been jostled a lot. We try to get in and out carefully of places and we got bumped and... Uh, over this last year and a half, two years, stuff's been spilling out of us. It's been spilling out of you. It's been spilling out of me. Years into the future, and by that I mean 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, uh, people are going to look back at the church during this time. And, and they're going to evaluate what spilled out of us. During this time, I, I should have looked into this more before I started talking about it right now. But I, I remember in, in studying church history, just reading of the Middle Ages and the plagues and how the church ran into danger to love people and care for people. That's the story of the church hundreds of years ago. Uh, others were fleeing the city, and, and the, the believers were caring for people as they died. It was this testimony of what spilled out of God's people throughout history. And, and 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, it's going to be written, it's going to be noted what spilled out of Christians during this season and, and I wonder 
Is compassion spilling out of us? Is love spilling out of us? When people look back on this time, will there be a testimony of a church and and of a Christianity that as much as we were knocked through this time, love just kept coming out and love just kept coming and, and people kept giving away and laying down and giving up for the sake of love. I don't know how to answer that for the church right now. I think it's hard to define that when you're in the middle of it. But I do want to examine my heart. And I want you to examine your heart. In light of how John describes practical everyday love, what is spilling out of you the most during this season? When someone looks at your life, when someone looks at the words that you use, the things that you say, the things that you're doing right now, what would most people say, well, this is spilling out of them. This is coming out of them. This must be who they are because when life got hard for all of us, this is the person they became. What is that for you? And when all of this is done, we move on to whatever the next thing is. Would you rather would you rather be known as the person who talked a lot of good things during this season or would you rather be known as a person who did good things during this season who exhibited love during this season God I pray that you would challenge us John is very clear James is very clear. We cannot, regardless of the environment that we find ourselves in the world. John said, look, the world's going to hate you sometimes. (laughs) We cannot use that as an excuse for something other than love spilling out of our lives. And God, I, I pray that the witness of your church, the witness of your people would look more like Jesus than Cain. It would look more like sacrificial love than it would look like hatred. It would look more like compassion than it would look like demanding what is mine. Help us to walk in the way of love. To spill love wherever we go. To spill compassion on whoever we bump into. And in doing so, to clearly proclaim that the love of God lives in us. The worship leaders are going to lead in a song. And I just want you to use this song as a time to reflect What's spilling out of you? You don't have to sing or stand. Just just reflect upon the person that God wants you to be in these days.